0: Hello, welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. I'm Dr. Yishan, a board-certified sleep psychologist. Today, we will continue our conversation with Dr. Rani. She is board-certified in sleep medicine and neurology, and she's also the chief medical doctor of Knox Health. She will offer us some insight and helpful methods to help children and teenagers sleep better. Don't walk away, we'll be right back. So Thanksgiving is coming up. Do you want to get a quiet and restful sleep during the holiday break? Quiet on sleep earbuds can help you cancel the noises in your bedroom, including your bed partner's snoring sound. And it can give you a quiet sleep environment. For all my listeners, you can get 10% off with the coupon code deepintosleep 10 and additional $50 off their website from November 21st to the end of Cyber Monday. So for the holiday season, you get double discount. If you want to give it a try, this may be a good time. Okay, now let's welcome Dr. Rennie. Hi, welcome Dr. Rennie. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm curious about children and teenagers because I know a lot of researchers or you know sleep clinicians, they treat adults very well but I feel like teenagers and children, their sleep issues are important and sometimes ignored by parents because I got a lot of questions from parents. They're like, children could have sleep disorders. How young could they start having it? Some Somehow they just feel like that's an adult thing. It's not a children thing.
1: You're 100% correct. And so we um, we see a lot of kids. So we see kids two years of age and up. Our job and goal has been in our mind as well, again, to educate psychologists, schools, pediatricians, and a lot of times it comes from the parents. So a lot of these things are genetic. Um, So there's always definitely the environmental behavioral component that can be part of it genetically as well with a lot of disorders we see. And so it's not uncommon that we see a parent and they say, you know what? They'll say, do you see kids and say, you know, a lot of things I'm exhibiting I had when I was younger and, you know, what? I'm seeing it in my child and they'll bring them in, or they're able to talk to their friends, and it becomes this word of mouth to say that as well, and so you're 100% correct. There are things that we definitely see in kids that we do see in adults as well, for sure, um, but we also see independently things that are very um, specific to kids as well, and so um, I think the big thing again for for us is to, yeah, identify, educate, diagnose, treat, um, and we see the impacts that poor sleep has on kids for them. It may be hyperactivity. So they might have true ADHD, but also ADHD that may be secondary to an undiagnosed sleep disorder, or may be exacerbated by that because when kids are tired, sometimes they get more hyper. They don't know how to self-soothe and settle down. It's definitely hard to focus or remember things when you are sleep deprived mood disorders as well. We often see learning challenges. Um, we definitely see that as well. And so, um, a hundred percent, you're absolutely correct.
0: Mm. Wow. Sounds like children's, um, the way they show they are not sleeping well is quite different than what our adults thinks they should be.
1: Exactly. Correct. You're exactly correct. And just, you know, letting people know that kids can definitely have it. And if kids are having issues in their daytime or if they're waking up a lot at night or kids are snoring, um, we, that's not normal. We wouldn't expect that. And kids shouldn't be, and some kids will be so tired that they will, you know, definitely, especially with our, you know, our narcolepsy, um, you know, kids in idiopathic hypersomnia, which we do see around puberty, sometimes before that, they'll sleep, you know, and, you know, during the day in cars and other situations and would not be normal. You know, you wouldn't expect that. And so the question is, why is that happening? So definitely having people ask that question, as to what could be going on that would cause it. It's not, you know, I can't, I'm not going to say that everything out there is always secondary to a sleep disorder, but it's always something that should be in that differential.
0: I really think, you know, neuropsychologists should include sleep evaluation in their testing process. I just talked to someone yesterday about it. I was like, you know, we have a lot of misdiagnoses like ADHD and others in the mood disorders. Nobody rule out sleep issues and then possibly not accurate enough.
1: I love it. No, I think that's great. And it's, it's and you're right, just it's asking the questions. And so if it's there, then it's always, I always kind of like the idea of just let's rule it out. Yeah. You know, you can't ever promise that by addressing and treating it, it's going to make everything else go away, but it may make it easier to treat. And in some cases, it does go away, or it gets a lot better. And I would say there's no harm. Worst case is, you, you know, worst case, you don't have this issue anymore, and you feel a little bit better. But um, at least we know how much of an impact it has on this,
0: yeah. I definitely want to try to incorporate that in my own clinic when we do neuropsychological assess uh, assessment, we will try to see whether we can you know ask some questions about sleep. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so another question since we talk about children teens, remind me, like, you know, I see some teenagers uh, in my clinic. Sometimes it's these parents really anxious. And they think, oh, my, my teens, they don't sleep well, right? And then they book appointment for their teenagers. The teenagers coming in, when I talk to them about, you know, what's your concerns about their sleep? They're like, I'm fine. I just sleep a little late. I'm fine. So um, I definitely noticed that discrepancies in several cases. So I'm curious, is that common for teenagers have different treatment goals than their parents? Is that the parents too anxious or is the teenager just don't have motivation to work on their sleep?
1: So that's an incredible, that's a great question. And I think it's a little bit of both. I do um, you know, definitely think that there are certain cases where you're hearing that feel you know, like they're initiating sleep okay, they're getting their hours, it's easy for them to wake, they're not having any daytime dysfunction. And that's really the big thing is to look and say, is it a struggle for you to do this? You know, What does your quality of sleep look like? And really, how are you in the day? How are you having issues that way we, we may attribute to issues with your sleep? And you're right, here are the disconnect from what the parents noticing versus what the report is from the child. And in some cases, it's you know a conversation that we have together and we'll say, let's watch together, let's see and re- and reevaluate. I think sometimes just having the open dialogue, I think sometimes the parents also just want us to, to really be there to help with reiterating maybe some sleep hygiene issues. So I think there is that component as well that sometimes they don't want to, you know, it's hard for them to get the phone out of the room or computer, or they have different feelings on what an appropriate bedtime should be. You know, we just discussed definitely, hey, for your age, this is many, how many hours that would make sense really for your developing brain, how you're gonna do well cognitively in class and school, and especially if you're driving and with making decisions, which we know that, Teenage brains are still not fully developed and we might have more issues um, with impulsive decision making. And so definitely improving sleep helps. Part of that is just making sure we're all on the same page. But you're absolutely correct that sometimes parents and kids don't have the same feelings. And I've definitely also seen that with, you know, some of the people that I see who have narcolepsy, um, you know, where also what they feel is a, you know, um, an appropriate therapeutic response. You know, where some say, you know, I'm better than where I am, I'm able to do these things. But you know, I think the expectations on both sides don't always meet. And it, it's again finding that common ground together, um, which is hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that approach. And at the same time, I'm thinking, wow, if the child is really losing sleep, right? They just refuse to go to bed early or for anxiety or whatever issues, um, the parents Think that's healthy? They should go to bed a little bit earlier. What What can we do to those teenagers? Like, do we educate parents, coach parents how to, you know, uh, have a electronic curfew or something? I'm just curious how you guys handle it.
1: It's hard. It's and those we try. So I think we we do educate on you know that teens around puberty that we are going to see a natural delayed sleep phase that they won't go to bed like they used to at nine o'clock. And it's going to be harder for them to do that. But definitely there are things that they may do that may make it even more difficult. And so what can we do to remove that? So one of it may be don't let them sleep until two or three in the afternoon on the weekends because then when Sunday night comes around, there's no way that they're gonna be able to go to bed earlier. Um, So part of it is that consistency, which we talk about with adults as well, of keeping your sleep and wake time relatively similar somewhat within the same time zone. So I would say you know, don't you don't want to travel every weekend and lose three, you know, if you're waking up three to four hours, you know, later than what you do during the week, you're going to feel like you're permanently jet lagged. So let's keep that sleep and wake time consistent, which will help push your sleep drive. A lot of teens like to stay in their room. And that's another issue we find is that they come home from school, they're in their room. And so the delineating of what your school study space And your sleep space isn't really there. And that can sometimes prolong, you know, when they go to bed. Um, Definitely, you're right about the electronic curfew. They might have their computers in their room, phones, they're texting, they're doing all that. They do it during the day. So really, I mean, kids are on devices, I mean, pretty much from when they get up until when they go to bed, which also will, one, keeps their brain stimulated, but naturally delays that sleep time. Um, And so it's really kind of working on habits, let's make sure that they're getting some activity outside. Let's make sure we're not drinking caffeine in the afternoon or evenings. Let's really work on giving that technology break, both to reduce, you know, light, you know, suppressing melatonin, but also to really get the brain to decompress and see if it kind of enables it and then being realistic on what a sleep time would be appropriate at that age to hopefully achieve the hours they need, but also to kind of meet that parental teenage disagreement on what should be expected.
0: Yeah, wow. that's That sounds like a different direction of work, right? So I think that's why I make teenager work so complicated. It's not just them. It's the whole family system. If they don't sleep well, their parents may not function well during the day. But if they don't sleep well, parents possibly need to be part of the picture
1: that is a hundred percent correct and you're right it is and that's what sleep in general is it doesn't just affect the person it affects the whole family unit and so you know we see that with every disorder definitely with a teenage parent you know that that's hard because you do have parents who either go to bed early but now they're worrying about the fact that their child is still up or they stay up with them until they go to bed and then that's hard on them and they're not getting enough hours or they're angry about it. And it it creates this, um, yeah, it creates conflict. Um, Or, you know, or if someone's sleep is disrupted, you know, and we definitely see that with partners, if someone has disruptive sleep and it affects the other, again, it creates that. So definitely making sure everybody's on the same page tends to be a more successful way of getting someone, you know, to be able, one, to make the behavioral changes needed. And then maintain it. You know, I think that definitely helps if you have someone there to support you with it, but also having the same goals.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's so important to align the treatment goal within the whole family members. I love that. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned to help teenagers increase their activity levels during the day, right? I remember when I took the board exam before. Also, there was one lecture I listened, uh, some psychologists also emphasized that for the behavioral uh, interventions, they need to, you know, exercise more more activities. So I'm curious why that is so important for teenagers or do they naturally just uh, don't have enough activities
1: for them? They don't. I mean, uh, and I can speak from personal experience with a child of mine that has went, has gone from middle school to high school and they don't have, you know, it's not that they have, you know, PE in the day or recess time, these things that they had where you would burn off some energy and go outside, you know, really you're in classes all day and you're sitting in front of a screen throughout that whole day. So they're pretty sedentary. They're in front of a device and then, you know, if if they're not involved in a sport where they naturally have to go out, then it's you on your own have to essentially create that time to say, it's almost a mental break as well, um, I think is where that comes, important, you know, where it becomes important, because I think in general, teenagers already are dealing with a lot of issues where one, they probably aren't getting enough hours for what they need. You know, they're on devices, both in school and then, you know, navigating the idea of social media and all the things that go with it. And I think the idea of taking a break from a device of any sort to go outside, one, is good to get the natural light to be active. That already just act energy or exercise, sorry, in general is important for being able to fall asleep and stay asleep. We definitely know that it can help insomnia therapy, but from a mental health perspective, it can also be incredibly helpful. So it's just allowing that time to say, this is my time away from everyone else, just to be able to do this, whatever that activity is.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Great to know, and thanks for sharing that story, (laughs) your own experience. (laughs) And I also want to ask you, uh, since you work in this field, very experienced. I I got some questions, you know, from the audience and from my friends. They're curious about what happened during our sleep, like sleepwalking, sleep eating. And, uh, and, uh, somnia uh, Yeah, someone, cool. some of my friends watch that on the news. They were like, Oh, this is so cool. Like people could do this. I was like, that's not cool. That co- could make people in
1: trouble. Yes. We have medical legal issues. I come up with that one for sure. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I'm curious whether you can share a little bit about that to our audience.
1: Absolutely. So we call these behaviors parasomnias. So they are behaviors that happen during sleep and they're all learned behaviors. So, you know, I would say that someone who has not learned to walk a baby yet will not be able to sleepwalk. Um, But once they are able to, then they would be able to and same with sleep driving, they wouldn't be able to get in a car and go until you learn this behavior. So they're innate learned behaviors um, that arise at an undesirable time, which is during sleep. Often they are happening out of our deep or slow wave sleep. So typically, usually in that more first third of the night, um, there is a different type we can talk about, which are behaviors that happen out of our REM sleep, where you physically go through a motion of a dream. And often the person is has some awareness that they're doing that. And that typically um, happens more second half of the night. But for the ones you're talking about, which is night terrors, sleepwalking, sleep talking, sleep eating, yes, the sex omnias, Often initially, you see it's very, it's actually not uncommon to see sleepwalking, night terrors, and you know, sleep talking in kids. Typically, with these belt and brains, they have a lot more slow wave sleep, and that the percentage of that tends to go down as we get older. It's not necessarily, it's definitely not uncommon. It's not necessarily something that you have to do something about unless it causes, you know, safety issues or it's becoming frequent or they're having disruptions are in the day because of it. And we think that there may be a sleep disorder that they have that may be causing these issues. But oftentimes they can outgrow it. And a lot of times they can run in families. But definitely as we get older and we continue to still have these issues, the question for us is, is there something happening maybe within their sleep that's affecting their quality of sleep that's triggering these things to happen? A lot of times we can see it coexist with obstructive sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome. Sometimes, even medicines people take may prompt these behaviors. So, you know, definitely we want to try to figure out is it something that you've always had? Have you always been someone who's been a sleepwalker and it's progressed and you never really outgrew it? Or is this a new thing that happened? And if so, was there anything around that time? You know, did you start a new medicine? Did you change a dose? Or do you have maybe these other issues going on with your sleep that may be causing it? Um, and then looking at their hours of sleep, any stressors, so really kind of carving away all of that to see what may be triggering it.
0: Oh, wow. That's good to know. And I love that, too, to really think about the triggers, right? Because I think a lot of families, they may want to know, okay, other than seeing a doctor taking medication uh, as a family unit or as parents, what can we do? Uh, how can we support this person this family member with this sleep issues and I know some not only children adults could have some of this too right I don't know whether it's because it did not outgrow it or not yet or it got triggered
1: yeah (laughs) it it could be all of it and with adults we see that some might have had some degree of it when they were younger or some as you said it just kind of progressed and maybe got worse or didn't get better. And then for some, they've never had it. And then all of a sudden it's come up. You know, In either case, if anyone's an adult and still has it, it wouldn't be expected or normal to still have this as an adult. You know, Usually really by early teen years, you would expect a lot of that to have resolved even younger than that. And so definitely looking at the frequency, the impact, but definitely as our adults, it's okay, let's carve away at everything to see what do we think could be a potential cause of it you know, definitely, right. It's not always medication. You know, there are medicines to treat it, but definitely that's always our last resort. It's, should we remove something? You know, have you been put on Ambien? You know, some antidepressants can be a trigger. Um, Have you been under a lot of stress or not getting enough hours? And then, yeah, definitely looking for intrinsic sleep issues like sleep apnea or maybe restless leg syndrome that also may be an underlying cause.
0: Wow. Sounds like a lot of testing. Need to be done to really figure out and how people can, um you know, diagnose this this uh, restless leg syndrome and all the other sleep disorders you talk about. Do they just go to see a sleep doctor?
1: So it helps definitely. There are, you know, each one of them might require a different way to diagnose. So restless leg syndrome can be a clinical diagnosis in that meaning that they, you know, have symptoms that, you know, define it. So there are four symptoms we look for which is um, an irresistible urge to wanna to move typically their legs, but can be really anywhere in the body, but legs tend to be the more most frequent location where it's affected. Rest tends to make it worse, moving it tends to make it better, and it tends to occur in that evening period, often before bed, but for some can start earlier in the evening. And so mm-hmm. usually that's it right there. And so if someone exhibits all of that, you can make the diagnosis of restless leg syndrome. Um, some people don't have the restless legs per se, but they have what we call periodic limb movement disorder, which you would need a sleep study to diagnose where they might not have the clinical symptoms of restless legs, but they have periodic movements when they're sleeping that disrupt their quality of sleep. You can have restless leg syndrome and not have, um, and often a lot periodic leg movements, but don't necessarily have to. And you don't need a sleep study to diagnose it, but you would need the sleep study to diagnose periodic limb movement in someone who doesn't have, um, restless leg syndrome.
0: Okay, yeah. So there are ways to really figure it out, diagnose it, but uh, sounds like it needs professional opinions, right? I know some people tend to online check, check, and then self-diagnose
1: <laughs> it's true. And it helps. I mean, I think it helps so then you can talk through together and, you know, go through that sometimes people might look at one but not realize that maybe they have other things that are affecting what they've been trying to do to treat one. And we see that a lot, meaning, they have Russell leg syndrome, they've been, you know, trying to work it up, you know, and maybe have been put on medications by maybe their primary care or someone else. i not saying it's inappropriate, but just to say, hey, I'm not getting the response I was hoping for. I'm still having issues. And so then our goal is to say, well, is there other stuff going on that may be affecting your therapy? Are you on other things that may be irritating it? Or could you have coexisting sleep apnea? And that potentially can also trigger Russell legs and sometimes bring it out. And so sometimes when you treat that, that may help treat it. So some of it is just working together to say, hey, let's see what you have here. And our goal is to start crossing off the list to see what we can make better and what we can identify.
0: Yeah, I love that approach. That would be great, right? So any audience listening this, right? If you want to check out some symptoms, some information online, do so, but bring it with you together and discuss with a sleep doctor.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Our goal is to help try to make it an easier process so that someone doesn't have to necessarily have all the answers. We don't expect it. We want to, you know, but educate, go through it together and see if we can get to the root cause.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, I have last question. Sorry. Sure. No, this <laughs> is great. great. I love to this. be able to communicate with you. So another thing a lot of my parents really worry about their children are sleep terrors, even very occasional ones, not very yeah. severe ones. So I, because I think it's such a disorder among children that terrifies parents. It's, it's make a big deal, make a big noise and the children's reaction could be huge at night. So uh, I know a lot of parents worry about will this really something could be treated or will they really get better in the future? And another worry is, you know, at that age, children will have other activities outside of the house. I sleep over camp and other things so i can understand the parents anxiety they don't know or oh, should we just not let our kids go to anything or should we have to tell everyone about this problem how they're gonna <laughs> perceive our kids right so I'm, I'm curious about how um like whether this is something you notice and how you educate parents about that
1: no, it's a great question. I mean, sleep terrors are frightening, and they're—it's frightening to everybody but the person going through it because they don't typically remember anything. They don't know, but it's like it's—it's it's frightening, especially the first time, because you know, one, it—it's—it's it's like clockwork. I mean, it's usually that hour and a half, you know, right after falling asleep somewhere in that hour and a half to three-hour mark, and it sounds like this person, you know, it sounds like your child is personally, you know, just is terrified, feels like they're being attacked. Often, they can have a pretty scary image, you know, and they can talk about this and, and the parent is watching this and going, what can I do? This can't be normal. And honestly, you know, it really is one is not, it is a normal thing that we can see when kids are younger, they do outgrow it. And if they don't, definitely we're here to see why, if it's very frequent, of course, we want to know why. Um, And that's what we want to help to figure out. It is, It is incredibly scary um, for anyone to notice. And I think the other hard part we always tell parents is the best way to deal with a night terror is to not get in front of them. So let your child go through this. But sometimes, you know, you want to go there and you want to comfort them. You're like, oh, no, my child is in pain and they're scared. I want to make that go away. But inadvertently, it can sometimes prolong that night terror. Typically, the best thing you can do is maybe just soothe them from the side, just talk, say, hey, it's okay." We're here, but don't physically go there. You just said that weekend, we don't prolong it. But it is, you're right. I mean, I think that's definitely the big thing we hear is the sleepover part of it, camps, what do we do? It's a tough question. I mean, definitely, it te- the nice thing about night terrors. is it tends to get better by the time they're doing a lot of these overnight activities. Sleepwalking definitely could still go on, but night terrors tend to start getting a little bit better. It, it's a lot of it to hopefully give reassurance that your child is okay, that they're not being affected by it the way the parent is being affected and everyone else. Um, But of course, again, if it seems that it's out of normal, it's not getting better or it's getting worse, we want to double check to see if there's something that's affecting it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Again, to find the other, you know, triggers, right? Uh, Factors around it to really guide the family and what, and whether there's anything they could do about it
1: exactly yeah because sometimes it can be you know are there stressors at school or somewhere else that may be affecting their sleep and maybe increasing it so it's trying to tie into say hey do we see anything obvious going on you know we've had some where some has some night terrors and it really picked up after they moved to a new house the child was you know now staying in the same room as a sibling And that seemed to amplify it. And then, you know, in time, it got better when things stabilized. And so sometimes to say, hey, did something change that may have increased it? Um, So those are usually the first things we look for. And if there's nothing obvious, definitely we all delve into. Could there be other things going on in the sleep itself that may also be a trigger like restless leg syndrome or sleep apnea?
0: Yeah. You know, one thing I love sleep uh, medicine field is I feel like we're all somewhat detectives, right? We are looking at all these clues and piece them together and try to get a better picture of this case
1: and understand it. That's the fun part about it. I I totally agree. I think that's the fun part. And it's always the fun part, as I think about sleep medicine, is that typically when you see someone, they get better. Um, and that is such a rewarding feeling to when somebody can te- feel the benefit of what it's like to sleep better, it makes it even more fun to be the detective, to say, I want to get you there. Um, and so it's awesome.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Rennie, for sharing all this wonderful information with us. If any audience are curious about your work, where can they find you or read more about your work?
1: Absolutely. So um, we, our website is knoxhealth.com and I welcome anyone to come check us out. And yes, we are here and we want to help.
0: Great. And sounds like people out of the Atlanta area can also reach out to you and uh, find the help, right? Absolutely. That's awesome. That's really needed. <laughs> no, I feel like sleep is a global issue, <laughs> but the resources are so limited.
1: Agree. And that is where we hope to change it. We want, that is the ultimate goal is to make sleep accessible to everybody.
0: Yeah. I hope, you know, with, with your effort, with many other people's efforts, this goal is going to be achieved soon.
1: (laughs) Yes. And thank you for doing this. This is a good way to get that message across.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, and before we end, I'm curious, any other, any final wisdom, any final words to whoever listening or curious about sleep?
1: Absolutely. So I think if anybody is um feels that you know their sleep is not restorative, that it is a struggle to get to sleep, they wake up a lot at night or they just don't feel rested the next morning or they have issues in the day feeling fatigued, tired, sleepy, to definitely, you know, talk with your doctor about seeing if, you know there may be something going on with your sleep that may be impacting how you feel,
0: yeah. love that. So be cautious about your own body. And then try to get the help and check it out as soon as
1: possible. A hundred percent. Yes, we are uh, we are our best advocates, definitely.
0: Yeah, definitely love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Rani. Thank you for listening. Thanksgiving is coming up, so my clinic, Mind Body Garden Psychology, will give out fifty percent coupon to all of our online courses including my own insomnia treatment course, both in Chinese and English at deepintosleep.co slash insomnia. The coupon code is MBGTHANKS2022, and the deadline of using it is the last day of November. I hope you like it. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Dr. Shen. Happy Thanksgiving, and I will see you next time. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently.